Okay, coming to you live from the sixth floor of the Hiawatha. This is episode five of the System Failure Podcast. Hey Brian, how are we doing this week? Oh, you know, pretty good. Uh, as always, I'm ready to discuss the topics of, you know, Platonism and socialism and uh, other mind-bending ideas. With our uh, dear podcast listeners, um, should I jump right into that at the top? Uh, or do you have anything you'd like to lead with? Well, I just want to say regarding the structure of the podcast, <laughs> what we're trying this week is we'll have a little monologue from Nate about what he's been uh, thinking about this week. And then we'll get into some discussion probably about that and other things, uh, sort of the structure of the podcast. And yeah, Nate, I think you should uh, get into it uh, with uh, what you prepared this week. So lately, a, um, yeah, I, I've been thinking a lot about Platonism, which again is this idea that it's not really the world of atoms that's that's the primary reality we live in. That's just an illusion, that it's the realm, this realm of ideas overlaid on top of that. Another way of thinking about this might be that but you might have a chair and let's say a table in the room with you right now, um, and you you're able to identify and recognize recognize these things as distinct and different objects. But the way to understand Platonism, I think, is to realize that the space between the chair and the table is made of the same basic stuff that the chair and the table is. And that is to say, protons, neutrons, electrons, what have you. And that, that, so that what you really are doing is vivisecting this cloud of electrons that varies in density and, you know, in charge and all this cloud of particles, you're kind of vivisecting it with the mental framework that Plato argued was the primary, the primary reality where it, whereas the 4D matrix, the thing which we measure with protractors and rulers and stopwatches, that thing is just an illusion. Um, and as we mentioned before, uh, this idea that reality is kind of like a dream or a lucid dream where you're creating it and living it simultaneously, this, this, is, the, this is the legacy of Platonism. And you found it in the Alexandria Gnostics or Gnostics of the second and third century. Uh, the, these guys were Christians, um, but they held these Platonic view. Uh, they, they, might have said, um, they might have said that Christ came to, say, to declare that we are all sons of God, not that he is the one exclusive son of God. It'd be another way of thinking about maybe how the Alexandrians thought, the, the, the Neoplatonists, of, they were called, of Alexandria, thought about Christianity up until the time the Roman Empire put the kibosh on them. And in the, but later, during the Middle Ages, the, that school of thought became pushed underground. It was illegal, of course. The Roman church, didn't, they didn't take kindly to it. Um, but that really became the tradition of magic. Um, which was, again, the, the idea that if, if reality is like a dream that you're simultaneously creating and experiencing, that you can then, then because if you, if you wake up and realize that as a dreamer, they say you're lucid dreaming. And then your, your dream, which the realization that the dream is emanating from your own mind, it, in other words, waking up from that illusion of being merely an observer uh, instead of a, a, an objective observer, instead of parted to the act of the creation of the dream world itself, that illusion shatters. You realize you're lucid dreaming, and that makes the dream, it admits of some manipulation on your part because of that realization. Um, and so the, the magicians kind of took that notion into reality. Well, if reality is a dream, you can kind of wake up from the illusion and possibly it admits of some kind of manipulation. This is what alchemists thought and summoners and... 
uh, and astrologers and all, all these different schools of magic. But of course that was, again, as we said, uh, anathema to the church. They would just burn people at the stake who dared to suggest that they had a hand in creation. Like comparing yourself to God is the, the, the biggest blasphemy there is. And, uh, you know, since that era, the church has kind of fallen into disrepair. Their mantle of authority, uh, they, they were the ones who defined reality for the, uh, the denizens of the Middle Ages. And they, what they said, people assumed, was true. Um, and when the church became discredited, uh, that mantle of authority kind of passed to science. It's, it's today, it's scientists who, who, tell us what, who have the authority to tell us what reality actually is and people who don't listen to people who don't believe the dictates of science are they, they just get laughed out of the conversation just like those who had differing opinions to the church once faced um, extremely painful penalties for professing their belief um but interestingly science came out of magic the magical tradition yeah, alchemy becomes chemistry astrology becomes astronomy uh, a lot of um, pointy wizard hats get traded in for white lab coats. Science lacks the... the it, during that transition, science lost the platonic insight, the thing that had been so integral to the Neoplatonists of Alexandria and to the magicians of the Middle Ages. And science kept the old idea of the church that you're a mind wandering inside, around inside a large, vast creation versus being a part of creating that creation and walking around in it at the same time. Um, and so that really leads us into a, just, a, just a quick touch of, of the history of science. Why would I want to do that? Well, because when, when, you go, go down a, 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 when you go down the list of all the great scientific advances in history, it really becomes, you would think that, you would think it would be a, a very sober story about gathering evidence and thinking carefully and making, you know, uh, and not going too fast and making careful calculations and coming to good conclusions. But it's really a story of angelic visitations and fever dreams and summoning of the devil that really is it was wild beyond belief. You would think the history of science would reflect the sober way the scientists, you know, tell us the, the, the very clear and measured way that they tell us what, what is and isn't true and take their role seriously as arbiters of reality, you'd think their history would reflect that. But no, it's a, it's a comical series of wild, wild stories. So let's start in. Of course, we have Rene Descartes. Um, this guy is, uh, we remember him from elementary school. He invented the Cartesian coordinate system, the, the grid with the graph with the XY axis that you do all of those algebraic calculations on. That's that they call it the Cartesian coordinate system because, of course, of this guy, Rene Descartes, he's the guy that said cogito ergo sum. Uh, meaning I think, therefore I am, which was uh, sort of, a, well, it wasn't sort of, it was the defining, it, it, it laid the groundwork for the, for Western philosophy from that point onward. So Rene Descartes, super important guy. Uh, in 1619, he's holed up in a little shed. He was involved in the military. I guess he was a sellsword or a mercenary. And uh, he was, this was the very, the, 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 the opening salvos of the 30 years war. He was involved in that. So it's now at 1619 and uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, He's traveling across Europe with his military outfit, and he's staying in this shed. And it's snowing outside, and he's got this stove going in there, and he ends up having, it's hard, it's hard to tell. His biographer said he was visited by angels that told him that the conquest of nature was to be found in measure and number, which laid, the found, which led him later to, which is what he, according to his biographer, said, was the thing that 
allowed him to establish the Cartesian coordinate system. Um, his Wikipedia entry refers to the incident as a case of exploding head syndrome, which I guess is when you're in a near sleeping or when you're in that twilight between being asleep and being awake and you hear loud you apparently you can have audio hallucinations including loud noises and uh so i i'm not sure you know why the, the wikipedia says he had a case of exploding head syndrome but i there doesn't seem to be any real controversy at all that it was a wild vision that old Rene descartes had that um that, that allowed him to lay the 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 foundation stones of western philosophy as we understand it today um, another interesting thing that happens, this happens a couple of times in the series, in the history of scientific discovery is that two people independently make the same scientific discovery at the same time. Lens idea to Plato's um, notion that ideas are out there, um, have, have a life of their own floating out there in the ether until they're where we need them and they pop into our heads and that's how we recognize our table, that's how we recognize our chair. But it's interesting that um, calculus was invented by two guys at the same time. A German dude named um, Wilhelm Gottfried von uh, Leibniz. And, um, of course, uh, in England, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, who was, a character, uh, who was a character in and of himself. He was born on December the 25th and sought to emulate or be, be as close to Jesus as possible. Um, he died celibate. Uh, he died a virgin, I guess, trying to, trying to be as Jesus-like as he possibly could. Um, but he, of course, formalized the laws of gravitation, um, and co-invented calculus with Leibniz. And uh, calculus is is one. It, it, it's it's a it's, when if you just to watch a YouTube video on your basic calculus, if you don't, if you haven't, if you haven't ever been, you know, been able to understand the insight, why, do yourself a favor, watch a fifteen-minute YouTube video on calculus. It's like looking into the mind of uh, of genius. I, I can't I can't imagine how smart you'd have to be to invent something like that, but. Once you know, you know. Um, Isaac Newton, of course, was a, a noted alchemist, too, in addition to wanting to be like Jesus. And you can tell that his beliefs are kind of Gnostic uh, just by the fact that he wanted to emulate Jesus. Uh, another famous co-discovery was a man named Alfred Russell, Russell Wallace, who uh, was, on a, was a British scientist. He was on an expedition in Indonesia. He got malaria. He fell into a, a fever got swept up to a mad fever dream. And when he woke up from the dream, he had the idea of the uh, evolution as a explanation for the physical form that species manifest in. And uh, he was so excited about this idea, he dashed off a letter to his good friend, Charles Darwin back in London. And when Darwin got the letter, he was astonished because Darwin was halfway through writing his origin of the species. And, um, for a long time, for decades, I guess, the theory of evolution was not called the Darwinian theory of evolution. It was the Darwin-Wallace theory of evolution. But then later in life, um, because of this crazy incident in the fever dream that led him to have this breakthrough, uh, Wallace just developed an embarrassing, embarrassing to the, the, the stodgy, stiff-cravatted Victorian scientific community he was a part of. He, um, he developed an interest in spiritualism and the occult, <laughs> and so they had to kind of take his name down, and it just became the Darwin theory of evolution after that, and that, of course, is what we learned in school. Another good example, August Kukule. He, this is a German, uh, I guess, um, pharmacologist. I'm not exactly sure what his... He's, pro, he's involved in, like, proto-pharmacology. He discovers the ring-like structure of the benzene molecule which is the basic for all organic chemistry and when he's asked what happened how did you how did you come up with this idea 
He said he was in a reverie or a daydream, and he dreamt of the Orboros, which is the old alchemical symbol of the snake eating its own tail. And that led him to think, to, to, that led him directly to visualize the benzene ring molecule chain, which is, I think it's eight carbons and eight hydrogens. I, I can't remember even my most basic organic chemistry. But the idea is it resembles the snake eating its own tail, which is uh, something you can see in the Palazzo Vecchio in Florence. So they, the Medicis would have their, uh, their arteries, they patronized, you know, put the Arboros in the pictures. They really flirted with, they, they were in open conflict with the Vatican at that time. And they, they really flirted with open revolt against things the Vatican had historically called a heresy. Anyhow, one more example. Um, later in Germany, uh, there was the, in the, uh, the late 18th century, uh, there was a, a playwright and scientist whose name was um, Wilhelm Friedrich von Goethe. I can't, I can't remember Goethe's first name now, but it's Goethe. He wrote this um, wild play. It's, I guess it's called a closet drama. So the thing is, you're supposed, it's, a dra it's a play and it's in verse, so it's a long poem. And you're in a, but it's got different people talking as if they're on stage, but you're supposed to read this. You're not supposed to actually act it out. Um, but anyhow, it's the story of Faust. Who, I, I, who, there is actually, I guess, records of this person, Faust, who, who was capable of all kinds of amazing tricks and had purportedly sold his soul to the devil. He was wandering his way across Europe. According, There's, I guess, two different guys that could potentially have been um, that have this name. But at any rate, it's also a famous play by Christopher Marlowe, who was a contemporary and competitor of William Shakespeare. He wrote this play, Faust, about the same idea, a man who gets extraordinary powers by selling his soul to the devil. Um, so this German play uh, apparently was um, was the favorite of a guy named Nikola Tesla, and a uh, hundred years after uh, Goethe writes this play, Nikola Tesla memorizes it, and he's thinking about this whole concept of selling your soul to the devil, and that's when he thinks of when he when he realizes that alternating current is going to be the the technology by which you can propagate electricity over long distances. Um, so in this case, you might, it might be true to say that we might not have the electrical grid as we know it today if it weren't for, the, for, for Goethe's insane poem about selling your soul to the devil. And what do, and, and, I mean, it's interesting, electricity in so many ways, like think about uh, how electronics are affecting us, you know, our iPads, televisions, all the ways in which we've gained a much bigger window into the world, but at what cost? Maybe it is a little like selling your soul to the devil. Well, uh, that's all very interesting, and it's it's wild how much angelic visitations and demonic summonings and infernal contracts of the devil and other things like that have to do with the history of science. But there's real I mean, those are some of the biggest highlights in in its history, and it's really funny to know to note just how wild a history that really is. And one final note: all this talk on the devil makes me think once again of the Catholic Church. You, ha you have to understand the church, they couldn't have, they had to have their monopoly on Jesus being the only way that you could access heaven because they were selling sin remission. They had a scam going on where you paid them for God's forgiveness. And people who were, who were believers of the magical tradition, who considered themselves to be co-partners with God in the act of creation, aren't going to be likely to pay the church to have God forgive them of sin. So it had to be this blasphemy that comparing yourself to God is just absolutely unforgivable and you have to be burned alive at the stake in order to make sure that people didn't spread that idea. Um, Platonism, in other words, was very bad for business. And that explains a lot of why we think the way we do in the 21st century here in the good old US of A.
so that's my uh, that's my little TED talk for today, Brian. Uh, any immediate reactions, or have you got uh, have you got another subject to turn us to? Well, one thing about uh, Platonism that I've been thinking about is that well, Hulk Hogan was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he was talking about how like Hulk Hogan the character like improved him as a person. Um, wow, I mean, that's interesting. Yeah, he was just, you know, well, he was, he was out there abusing drugs and whatnot on the road. And then, like, he was doing the Make-A-Wish Foundation for Kids. And he, just the character of Hulk, Hulk Hogan, I don't know, it made him become, like, a better person. <clears throat> and so I think that's kind of, a, like, a platonic idea. Yeah, definitely. It's like he was, it's like his own, the own, the idea, he conjured up this ideal and it, like, took a positive ideal and took possession of him, I guess, by his testimony, improved his life. I saw uh, I saw the Hulkster's name pop up on the podcast feed, but I didn't give it a listen. I'm glad you did. That's a really good example. Well, actually, it goes on, you see. Wow, okay. <laughs> because he started talking about his religion, and he was saying that uh, the way to pray is to thank God like you've already got it. <laughs> if you're trying to say, you know, get, build strength or something, you'd say, thank you, God, for this strength, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's an even more platonic idea. <laughs> well, when you're like an atheist in, I don't know, high school or college or whatever, it's hard to fathom how such mechanisms could work, right? I guess you fall into a spell of atheism, or at least like online Reddit atheism, when you just don't see the mechanisms in the, I don't know, you're just trying to live your life based on like what the evidence around you suggests, right? Um, yes, yes. But I just want to double click on that for a second. Um, I, I feel like there was a wave of materialism slash atheism, you know, during the, the, during the Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Daniel Dennett, and uh, Richard Dawkins quadrumvirate there. Uh, that was, um, that was a real high watermark. I feel like that was more about our cultural maturity than our individual maturity. I wonder if you'd agree with that. Or do you think everyone has to go through a materialistic phase? Uh, yeah, I guess. I'm, are you saying it's an inevitable part of adolescence? Because uh, I feel like it was more of society as a whole went through that. But well, I mean, in this day and age of the internet, I guess the topic of religion garners real scrutiny that uh, it just <laughs> didn't have back before. Uh, yeah, so maybe we, I don't know, maybe we matured both both as individuals and as a culture. I see. Anyway. Uh, when you're so when, anyway, when you're going through the atheist phase, as a, uh, maybe some of us have, um, well, yeah, just if someone told you that, asked you praying, like you, well, does praying actually work? What's the mechanism behind it? It doesn't make sense from like a the I don't know viewing the objects in front of you as real as opposed to uh, the idea realm of ideas being more real. But when you start to consider that the realm of ideas is more real than, you know, I, I don't know, the objects, which are really ideas in our head. I mean, praying to God in like the traditional ways it's depicted in the TV or I don't know, whatever. Yeah, it may not work. But the platonic model, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of using the platonic model to your advantage, I think. Yeah yeah it's so once you start to see it it's everywhere the way that the realm of ideas shapes and intrudes in the material realm it, it, it was such when i was in my we should i guess we'll call it adolescence or materialistic phase or whatever 
it really it was really convincing of course the universe is made of atoms bouncing off each other like billiard balls like so many billiard balls and it's an easy uh, easy you know graspable way of imagining your position in the cosmos but the more you, the more you the more the older you get the longer you live the more you can see the patterns and the way that they flicker and dance in inside the 4D matrix that we live in and um a, another great example of that might be Dan Carlin's podcast about where you, you like the Scythians and the like talking about ancient empires in the in the in the near east and the way that they would you'd go raid your neighbor neighboring empire and you'd seize their god which was a statue and you'd carry it back to your to your city as a prize now now we've captured your god like i've got your nose and it's but the gods the gods all were like archetypical you know and so a god like a, a society that was that didn't have a warlike god or didn't have some kind of i uh archetypical warrior to aspire to be you know might not be able to defend itself so well and one that didn't have a strong mother goddess might not um, care for its children as well. There's, there's different combinations of pantheons of gods or different combinations of character traits and single gods that really, it really makes a difference uh, on the chessboard, uh, the geopolitical chessboard, what the ideologies behind, behind the political entities are. And, uh, and that's really, that's a really interesting, uh, like, like your Hulkster example. That's really interesting how, how those patterns are, more real even though they exist outside of time and space they're, they're more real than the 40 matrix well i can respect hulk hogan a lot more <laughs> now i i'm telling you yeah the, the hulkster man yeah well he sounds like he's doing substantially better than perhaps he once was um maybe maybe uh, would you agree with that based on listening to the podcast well i guess my opinion is you can just you can just see where his charismatic power comes from uh i mean uh I, well I mean, I didn't really watch wrestling as a kid, <laughs> but when you saw Hulk Hogan, I don't know, he had some sensational power to like win over the crowd. Um, yeah. Consummate showman. Yeah. Well, we but we did get to experience him lifting Andre the Giant over his head in WrestleMania two at the Pontiac Silver Dome in 1988 or 89, whatever that was. Got to thanks to the majesty of YouTube. So I mean, and you're right. He de he definitely he's like the Donald. He knows how to work the crowd. That's a that's a skill that just not everyone has. Yeah. And you, maybe it's one of those like unteachable skills. I, I don't know, but um, but the Hulkster sure has it. All right. Well, speaking of Donald Trump, this is just another topic that came up this week that I you know I wanted to talk about. But on our picks on in Reddit, uh, this well this drove me well it drove me crazy I guess. But you know they posted the mug shots of donald trump and you know like rudy giuliani and the rest of his crew and these indictments or whatever and well there was just this reddit post about like uh the, the, the title that was like now this is draining the swamp and it's just really sad and so <laughs> i just have to reflect back on how we got here and bernie sanders and and whatnot so i mean i can understand like the sentiment because donald trump you know makes a lot of people angry and you know donald trump's presidency well i mean it was uh i mean just our, our overall levels of madness went up and so it certainly wasn't great and obviously finished with the covid so i guess all things being equal it was pretty bad uh although i'm not sure they're all things that donald trump could control but i mean he was fire on the flames at sometimes but anyway, just you just have to remember how we got to this point. 
like everything changed on the internet when Bernie Sanders uh, ran against Hillary Clinton, right? In the primaries. That was crazy time. I remember the lines to vote for Bernie in the primary were, were so long that people made drone footage, you know, they, they, or they would walk with their camera, but then speed it up to, to like yakety sacks, you know, just a really long line going around, really just a comically long line. Eventually they shut the polling places down here in Maine. Uh, early and just said sorry you can't vote anymore and, and left and people didn't get to vote in the primary right so like just well it goes back even further because it just goes back to the iraq wars in george bush and like everyone wanted hope and change after george bush you know we wanted to be like a like a 20 it was like the new millennium you know we want the usa to be a great place <clears throat> like everybody friggin voted for obama and then after eight years, it was really like, you know, mostly more of the same, <laughs> more indefinite war. There was no new wars, but, uh, you know, we had a terrible economic collapse. And then, you know, the Afghanistan and Iraq wars continued. Well, I guess the Iraq war ended sometime under Obama, but the overall engagement in the Middle East uh, mostly continued. Anyway, so after Obama, well, everyone wanted, yeah, Bernie Sanders and well we were denied bernie sanders even though he had overwhelming popular support <laughs> and then i don't know and so you just people fall into two camps after that uh disappointment i mean you you, you want to vote for donald trump for change or are you too scared to think donald trump is terrible and so you vote for the establishment you know it, it's but we're better off with someone like joe biden who will at least steer the ship the way they have in the past and it's just crazy that to go back to this Reddit post, I mean, I, I can see where the sentiment comes from, but man, it was just like, uh, it's just really sad that anyone's idea of draining the swamp would be getting rid of Donald Trump and like uh, accepting the, like the establishment and all the horrendousness that's happened and leading up to how we got here. <laughs> there is no question in my mind that what happened, the polls that show that Bernie um, the, the poll that showed that Bernie had the potential to beat the Donald in uh, the 2016 election, I think, are numerous and don't need to be cited at this point. It's really the case that the, that the people were so upset by the mismanagement that one of the been going on in Washington D.C. since the since 9/11, really, that the DNC, I think, is true to say, managed to managed to sabotage their outsider, uh, who. But the but the Republicans couldn't. Donald Trump would just he just, he had that Hulk Hogan ability to work the crowd, and he just cut through the Republican primary candidate field like butter. <laughs> and then so you're like, and so if you're like me, someone who during that time I was in during during a period of just being a total like ten years of total student debt peonage, and I was like, man, we really I was really hoping Obama would be the you know the antidote to the crazy period we went through. Um, but it was been it's been more that he was the bank's man through and through. I think WikiLeaks showed us that he his, he he had Citibank approve his uh, his cabinet members. It's just ugh, it's bizarre. And so we weren't able to acknowledge all of the fraud that went down in two thousand and eight. We never recovered from it. We just continued in this bizarre twilight. And uh, twenty sixteen, I don't know. For me, I was really it was a big boost in morale for me when the Donald won. I, I voted for Jill Stein, the the, the Green Party candidate, um, but I was elated that the the, the Donald won in twenty sixteen because it was like acknowledgement that something is wrong. Finally, it was a huge morale boost for me. And I'm supposed to be this uh, like I'm like a, my politics are normally like hard left politics. There's not too many people harder left than me. I'll 
refer to myself as a communist if only to get a rise out of older folks but i really think that something like that is the future and so that makes me like the most extreme leftist possible on the political spectrum and i'm like excited that the donald won um and to the point of that mugshot that you mentioned i mean if you're into socialism or into the tradition of the workers worker power and solidarity I mean, it makes you think, I think the last, I'm, I'm, I, I think it's true to say that the last time that anyone ran from prison was, you know, that socialist hero, Eugene V. Debs, you know, who ran from prison, I, for, I think it was 1916. I, I think that's right. Um, that was the year he he ran from jail. It, so it's like, again, it's like, wow, another parallel. So that me, the leftiest of the lefties, has like, is, is now like, um, finds myself feeling sympathetic towards the hard right. Wild. Uh, wild that the center is that rotten. All right. Well, I just had one other platonic idea to discuss. Hit me. I think I've come to realize is that like I don't know. I guess well, this is this is definitely your uplifting system failure uh, moment of the week here. It's just that confidence is something that you have to practice, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those. It's one of those feedback loops. I've learned from Magic: The Gathering that I mean, well, there's just tons of decision trees, and if you make one wrong decision. It totally messes with, uh, you know, <laughs> your, your, your game is uh, off and lot. You can't get it back. And I think the reality is, uh, well, I mean, we're often faced with decision trees and you just got to make like the right decision. And I guess maybe practicing confidence is about practicing making the right decision. Yeah, I don't know. You definitely have to like practice mastery like over your material world, right? And so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I think practicing confidence is what you got to do, man. It, well, confidence has that chicken and the egg problem because you can derive confidence from reality. Um, it, it, and you can also derive, what's the opposite of confidence? Lack of confidence, insecurity from reality. <laughs> um, and I guess that's all in the interpretation, you know, to put it back into the realm of ideals or the mental realm. Yeah, I, I guess I would say mastery is mastery over the 4d matrix um, you can make it do things that maybe other people can't or at least you have such a good understanding of the 4d matrix that you're able to predict what's going to happen and react accordingly um and i think that that is the thing that women look for in us men uh, when they uh when they're that's the, that's the they're looking for signs of that and so they're looking for confidence and uh confidence is something that you can you can be so dumb as to not contemplate the possibility not contemplate the possibility of your own failure and that can look like confidence um so that's a whole really interesting arena and uh you're right that is definitely again you find that platonic realm washing up and uh, eroding the sands of the beaches here in the matrix it's really interesting to see how this way of thinking how you how it changes the way you view what's going on all right well on that positive note uh we'll wrap it up for this week yeah i guess we'll keep it short but sweet but we'll be back next week with another exciting episode of the system failure podcast